And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page number 613. 613. This is a favorite psalm of mine. And I think it is appropriate as we come onto this day of Mother's Day, this would be a chance for us to reflect on that. This is not a sermon that just applies to mothers, but that the psalm that we have here actually applies to us all. But I think that you'll find as we go through today that there is a unique comfort that's here for moms. So let's take a look at it together. This is Psalm 127. Do listen carefully because this is God's word that is for you. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like the arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this psalm that you have given to us through the pen of Solomon. Lord, I ask that the wisdom that it contains would be written on our hearts and that we would hear and believe. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, since becoming a parent, there is one thing that I have noticed that the world is not in short supply of, and that is the advice of mothers giving to other mothers how they should mother. There are books, magazines, blogs, podcasts, and heaven help us, Facebook groups. Dedicated to finding the hack, the foolproof way to raise your children just the way you want them to be in 300 easy steps. We have experts from every field coming out of the woodwork to tell us why their particular area of discipline is the primary thing that you should be focusing on. Whether it is organic food, Montessori education, authoritarian parenting, or gentle parenting, all these things were thrown at us. And we would think, being awash and all of this information that we have, that this would in some way be comforting. Because at least we have lots of experts telling us what it is that we should be doing. But it's not really as calming as you might think that it is. This is aside from just the fact that there's a lot of bad advice there online. But what we find is even the sound advice, the good advice, the advice that's actually correct... There's no way we can keep up with it all. There's no way that we can do it all perfectly. So it always feels like in parenting that we're just failing in slow motion, like mothering in a nightmare, trying to get our feet underneath us as we try to move forward. And it can feel overwhelming, mostly because we fall into the lie that it's all on us 
to get it right. And that maybe, hopefully, one day when we get to heaven, maybe we won't find God with his arms crossed saying, I tried my best to get those children, but you messed them up. What we find here in Psalm 127 is that's not what's going to happen. And what we find is that we're not going to get in the way of God's providence. But that, in fact, if we spend all of our time in anxious toil, we're passing up on the sleep that he's actually offering to us and wants to give to us. So we're going to take a look at these two points. And again, this is something that will apply beyond motherhood, but into any aspect of your life, even in the caring for yourself. This has something for us to say. So our two points that we're going to be looking at today is one, God provides for his people. It's a simple truth, but one that we often functionally forget. That God provides for his people. And that secondly, God blesses his people. That's something we also tend to forget. God's not also, God is not only powerful, but he's also good. And uses that power indeed to bless us. So let's see how he does this. Let's look at this psalm. This psalm, as you note in the little postscript there, or, or uh, prescript, whatever that is, is so that this is from Solomon's pen one of the wisest kings that had ever lived. So here is what he is writing to us, and it does sound a lot like a proverb, doesn't it? The way that it's written and the things that it conveys. What you'll also see in the Psalms, and this is in, once you see this, you'll see it everywhere in the Psalms, the way that Hebrew poetry works, because this is a book of poetry, it's not in trying to make the last word rhyme with the last word, like our language does it. But instead, this is what they, what they rhyme is by parallelism. That's a big word, so let's think about it. Parallelism is to say, here's the first idea, and here is the second idea that's very related to the first one, but giving us a slightly different angle on it. It'd be like taking a piece of artwork and looking at it this way, and then turning it just ever so slightly, and getting to see it from a different angle, and you get a, con- you get a better view of the concept as a whole by getting to look at it. And this is what God is doing for us and what he is telling us. Now, he begins and says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There's line one. Here's the second one. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then continues on with all of these things that will tell us if we are continuing to toil, to work, to worry Unless the Lord is behind it, it's not going to work. Now, a possible reaction that we can have for this is to fall back into some sort of glum, pessimistic view of how life works. And it's like, well, all right, well, if God's going to take care of everything, I might as well sit back and do nothing. Probably mess it up if I was to try anyway. That's not what the scripture is calling us to do here. That's not how God wants us to work. Instead, what we want to do is to work without the anxiety of it. Because we know it's the Lord is the one who's building the house. A perfect example of this is Jesus in the boat in the middle of the storm. Remember that story? When the disciples are flailing around with the ropes and the sails and trying their best to get this boat under control, fearing for their lives, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Why? Well, he's exhausted. But it's because he trusts in what God is doing. He's not worried about this. 
He's not flailing around with the ropes once he is awake, but has been trusting in what God has been doing in his life. He was asleep. How do you approach your work? Do you approach your work with the thought of, well, unless I do it, nothing else will get done? I am the personal Messiah of my social circle. And unless I do it, no progress will be made. Or do you spend the whole day working and working and working and then go to sleep and then just can't stop working and working and working? Because the thoughts just keep turning over in your head. What did I miss? What could I do tomorrow? How am I going to get this day going? In all this, we forget we're dependent on Jesus for anything to work. Because look what it says. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The watchman's awake. He's doing his job. He's doing everything he's supposed to do. But unless the Lord's behind it, it's not going to work. What this should do for us is to give us a greater understanding of our dependence on Jesus. I heard a, a sermon at Presbytery this week. And the pastor is speaking to pastors, always an intimidating venture. And he looked at us and said, when was the last time you thanked Jesus that you were dependent on him? That you thanked Jesus for your weakness. That you thanked Jesus that you have to depend on him. That struck me. Because I don't like being dependent on other people. I don't like to feel needy. That I have limits. I like the idea that I can care for myself. I like the idea that I don't need people. I like the idea that I can do it all myself. All that is just working in vain. That's denying what it says here. I can work all I want. I can study all I want. I can preach all I want. But unless the Lord builds the house, it's all in vain. So, of course, the question that we, that we should ask is, it's like, all right, well, then how can we be sure we can be building up the Lord's house? Because that seems to be the one that's going to be built, isn't it? How do we get to the point where we recognize what it is that we're working on? One of the things that I like to spend my spare time doing is read up and listen to things on productivity. It's just where I am in my time in life. And reading through all these things and figuring out how I can be more efficient and do this, that, or the other thing. And I've come across this concept where it talks about one of the best productivity systems is the one that keeps you from doing things you shouldn't be doing. It's a real change in how we think about that. We think about productivity as just raw getting things done. But here in productivity, it is be working on the right things and stop working on everything. You can't. Came across a book this week that was titled 4,000 Weeks, which is 80 years. It's all the time we have. It's vanishingly short. So how can we be sure that what we're building is the Lord's house so that it won't be in vain? How can we be working for the Lord? Well, one of my old seminary professors, Dr. Alan Ross, had laid it out this way in his commentary on this passage. 
The first thing that we do, we may say that the Lord builds the house if one, the people build it by faith in the Lord's provisions for it. That's step one. So making sure that when we're building it, we're not looking to ourselves and say, it's like, all right, can I do this? If that's the first question, we're off to a bad start. It's like, no, this is what God has called us to do. He's strong enough to do it. Resources, personally, that's not even on the table here. Because the answer is already no. It's not in me. It's in him. That's step one. Making sure that we build it by faith in the Lord's provisions for it. Second, in accordance with his will. Meaning, it's going to be built his way. So it's like, okay, we got to parent children. All right, we're going to go parent children, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to look at all these experts to figure out how best to form my child's soul. No, it's the word. Do it how God told you to do it. Number two. Number three, that's related to number two, in a way that is pleasing to him, honest and fair. Then fourth, this is hard. Dedicate it to his use and purpose and give him glory for the accomplishment. That's hard. I often like these productivity things because I like accomplishing my agenda. I want to get my stuff done. I want my calendar to be filled with my things. But instead, if we're going to be building the house, this has got to be God's things. And for his glory too. So when those things get done by faith in God, then I don't get to stand back and say, look at that, look what I did. That's not building God's house. To put it in a really short way, way my mother used to say it, is that God's work done in God's way won't lack God's provision. That's what it is. That's how we build the house. We build the things that he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it for his sake and not ours. That changes everything. But it's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to give up our desires, our wants, our wishes for our children, right? Or are they God's children? Is it God's work that we're set about to do, that he is ultimately going to be the one to get all of the credit for it. That's hard to let go. But when you do, that's how we get the end of verse two. For he gives to his beloved sleep. It was always comforting as a child, and it's fun getting to be on the other side of this, is when I would be scared at night knowing my dad was just outside the door. Because that meant he was going to take care of any boogeyman that was in the closet or any monster under the bed. Because he was right over there. And I didn't have to think about it. And I could go to sleep. And it's fun getting to be on the other side of that. I get to sit in a little chair next to my son's bed and watch him go from scared to asleep in just a minute. We still have the opportunity to be the little kid in the bed. Because our father's watching over us. He's caring for it. He's building the house. He's got it all taken care of. So you can go to sleep. It's not up to you. It's up to him. And he will build the house. He will watch over the city. He provides for his people. 
He gives you the opportunity to work. Jesus was very busy, even as he was trusting in his Father to provide for all things. He was up early. He was praying. He was preaching. He was healing. We're called to do those things too. To be up, be looking after the children. But it's a privilege that he lets us work in this area. It's a lot like when my dad would let me hold the flashlight while he would be working on something. I'm contributing in some way. That's a joy and a privilege to be a part of that. But all the anxiety is removed. Because the Lord's watching over his people. That's how he cares for us. So now let's take a look at how he blesses us. Here in verses 3 and following. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. This captures this word heritage captures how God sees children so well and how our society doesn't look like to look at it that way. Seeing more and more that we look at children as a financial drain or a cramp in our style instead of an inheritance or an heirloom from God. Do you have a family heirloom? I do. I've got a little pocket watch from my granddad near as I can tell. It's, it's, probably, it's probably 100 years old at this point. It's a precious thing, and there's value to it to me personally and sentimentally, and there's probably a little bit of financial value to it. I've never looked it up, but it's a great reminder of what a heritage is. This is a privilege for me to have, and it's also a responsibility for me to care for. If I care for it well, then I can pass it on to the next generation. Maybe one day my son will have that pocket watch. This is a gift that God gives to us as children. It's from him to us that we are entrusted with, that we have a responsibility for. Even as that burden kind of sinks into our shoulders as we think about that, we're reminded of this first part of the psalm, that he's the one who's taking care of us, but that this is a gift, an honored responsibility. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that, isn't it? Sometimes this heritage is hard and doesn't cooperate the way that we want it to. But nonetheless, this is how children are, that this is a gift and a reward from God. And he goes on to describe what children are like. Here in verse 4, he says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, this verse is a bit lost on us because we don't have this tradition anymore. But when in this, the time when the psalm was written, you would do all of your official business in the gate of the city. Kind of been like the courthouse of today. So if you had a dispute, you would go to this area to deal with it. And if you had a lot of children that were with you, you had a lot of representation to be witnesses for you. This would be a way when you had an enemy in the gate, you had people with you to help back you up. Now, there's more to children than just having a bunch of lawyers for you. Some would question whether or not that's a heritage, that's a blessing. But what this is talking about is that this is true for us is that children, when they grow and have many years of training and discipline, 
Nothing thrills the, the soul more than to see these little arrows fired in defense of the gospel. Because our enemies aren't flesh and blood, if you remember from last week. But that when we take on this next generation, pour into them, tell them of the good news that is come before us, the good news of the Lord, and they go out, we won't be ashamed when we meet our spiritual enemies and can look and say, go get them, kids. Take this gospel on to the next generation. That's what children are. Now, at this point, there might be a few feelings one way or the other about this. There may be some here for whom children have never filled their womb. And that is a deep pain that a lot of people experience. And then can think, it's like, well, if, there is a, if children are a heritage and a blessing, then maybe God doesn't like me because I haven't had children. That's not the case. We see all sorts of women whom the Lord loved that were barren for a long time. This is not the standard of blessing or the only way that God blesses us. But what he is saying here is that children are a blessing, something that is actually needed to, that we need to hear more than they did at that time. But this is not meant for us to look at this and say, oh, well, because the Lord hasn't granted me children biologically, that there must be something that I did in my past that the Lord is angry with me about. And that's not true. And by the way, there are more ways of being a mother than just biologically. Paul talks about having a spiritual son in Timothy and one that he had discipled and brought to Christ. There are children in your neighborhood that don't know Jesus. Well, there is motherhood that comes knocking. Or if you wanted to tackle some of the foster care needs that we have here, there are opportunities for foster children. In fact, right here in our county, there are over 70 children that need homes. It's just within our county. If you want to look across the country, that that number is 400,000 of children that need homes for care. doesn't even necessarily mean that this would be a permanent thing. Sometimes people need foster care just for a few months because the goal is to reunite them with the families. If that's something that, that you want to be involved with or like more information about, please come and see me. There are ministries that we can connect you to that will do just that. Biological children aren't the only way to receive a blessing from the Lord, but that you can be a blessing to these children that need a family. But maybe this day is painful for different reasons. Maybe you were a mother. You did raise children, but those arrows don't seem to be flying in the direction that you wanted them to. In fact, it seems like they've jumped out of the bow and landed two inches in front of you, or maybe curved around and struck you instead. And the thought can be consumed with the fact that, well, I must have failed in some way. Even if that is the case, the Lord is not done with your children. For as long as your children draw breath, there is hope for them. Why? Because we see that's what we saw in the first half of the psalm, isn't it? It's the Lord who builds the house. He may have a little bit more of a securitous route that he wants to take with your children. It may take them a while for them to come around and see. 
Maybe you will never see in your life here of them drawing, drawing and coming around. But as long as they draw breath, Jesus can still find them. No matter how far away they've gone, God's grace can run far faster, far further, and can bring them home. Don't give up. Keep praying to the Lord. He is kind. There's no promises that just because you're a Christian that they will be. But there's also no guarantee that just because they've been this way their whole life, that that means that they will be this way their whole life. Jesus can rescue. Rest in that. This is something that the Lord will continue to build. Now, oftentimes, as the Lord builds the house, he builds very slowly. And it can feel like he's not moving it quite at his timetable. The Lord doesn't build his house overnight. And it won't always look like the way that we imagined that it would. Who would have thought when the king of the universe was born, he'd be born into a manger? The Lord likes to subvert our expectations a lot. And oftentimes, as one theologian put it, the greatest victories of God's kingdom are often cleverly disguised as defeat. What was the greatest moment in redemptive history? When Jesus died on the cross. Who would have thought good could have been brought out of that? It was the Messiah, the one who lived a perfect life that we should have lived. Now he's dying like a criminal. How does this help? That's exactly what all the Bible has been pointing to, was to that very moment. And three days later, he does something no one really doesn't expect. He rises again from the dead. And now is able to offer to you a path to eternal life in heaven. If we will put our trust in him, turning to him from our sins. And can offer everlasting life. And to have all of our sins forgiven. All of them. Even the sins that you committed as a parent. Or as a mother. Those days when you look back and wince. The Lord has forgiven those. When those days that you wish for anything. You could go back and undo that one conversation. That one thing. And it all would be perfect. The Lord has forgiven that. And what's amazing is he'll work through that too. Doesn't mean it was a good thing to make the mistake. But what it does mean is you haven't thrown God off. You can't knock God off the track. And praise the Lord for that. He continues right on. To adapt a quote I came across this morning. If we were to say, it's like, okay, well, if God's going to do all of the work, if he's sovereign over all these things, then why do we work? And the answer would be, why would we work if he's not in control? Why would we do anything if he wasn't working on it? Because unless he's doing it, it's all in vain, right? So that's our comfort today. What's our takeaway? Is ultimately Christ has died on the cross for your sins as a mom, for those times in which you failed, and for those times in the future where you'll fail. For as long as we're alive, we have more opportunities to fail. Another encouraging news. But the better news is, is that God's grace has already gone before you. 
Jesus has opened up the book of of your entire life and has seen every single sin written on it. And he has declared you innocent. Not because you were able to open up the binder and stick more good pages in there. But because Jesus signed his name to your book. And instead presents the father his list of good deeds and no sins. And has signed your name to that record. That's the victory that we have. And it's in that comfort that we go on and say, okay, the Lord has entrusted these children to me. I'm not going to get it right. But the Lord's going to build the house. I'm going to take ownership of what I can. I'm going to live out these responsibilities and the privilege of serving the king of the universe to be in his employ. I'll do what I can. But I'm going to rest easy knowing that the Lord is the one who's building the house and that my labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this promise that allows us to go to sleep at night, that allows us to rest, that allows us to be thankful that we are dependent on you. Help us not to lose that. Help us to remember that you are over our shoulder, under our feet, directing our hands as we work. Help us to take comfort in that. And help us, most of all, to give you all the glory when one day we see that kingdom built. When one day sin is conquered, death shall be no more, sin will be no more. And we can spend all of eternity praising you for your work. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.